Good morning, River Valley Community Church. I uh, appreciate Adam so much that I decided to give the message this morning. <laughs> but what I really appreciate is giving, uh, being given this privilege to uh, use my gifts that God has given me in order to edify his body in the church. So this morning, I think that to really get the right grasp on our passage, we have to talk about... Uh, where we've been the past month or two in the upper room discourse, what Jesus has talked about up till this point in this passage. So you have Jesus saying a few things. Jesus says, I came to serve. The, man of, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Jesus tells his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you should love one another. Jesus says that I am leaving. And then right alongside that, he says, I am leaving you an advocate, the Holy Spirit, a paraclete, and somebody to uh, speak on your behalf. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the true vine. No one has life except for in me. Jesus says, if you follow me, the world will hate you because you are of me and not of the world. Sorry, this mic's hard to <laughs> play with. Adam's got a big ear. And after all that, Jesus sums this all up with a prayer for his disciples in unity. It's not a whole lot to take in, right? <laughs> but in this discourse, there are two people that Jesus really singles out, is what I'd say. There are two people that really stick out in this upper room discourse. You have Peter and Judas. And in the gospel, John makes it very clear that Judas is evil. His name is synonymous with evil, with traitor with betrayal and but what we don't see with Peter however is even after he was told that he was going to deny Jesus Christ three times we don't see his failure going down in history we don't see his name being synonymous with something bad or evil and this is something we see even throughout history even past this point George Washington in 1780 he was betrayed by a man named Benedict Arnold for secretly attempting to hand over an American fort to the British forces. This corruption has caused his name to become synonymous with traitor. So when you call somebody a Benedict Arnold, you are essentially calling them a traitor, which Adam gave me this illustration because I had, I had no idea who that was. They don't teach you much in public school. All right. Anyways, in this passage this morning, we're going to see that Peter will deny Jesus three times. He will fail utterly, yet his name isn't going down in history as a failure from his betrayal or his denial. We don't call somebody who denies something a Simon. The big screw-ups in history don't def usually define identity, but not for Simon Peter. So this morning, let's get into our passage in John chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 27. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be on the screen. The Word of God says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good, you are holy, you are just, you are mighty. Father, I pray that this word this morning would be your words, that you would reach the hearts and the minds of your people, that you would Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Father. That we would love your word, that we would dive into your word and understand what it has to say for our lives and the truth of the gospel, Father. That is the only way for salvation. Father, I thank you for letting us be here this morning, that we could all gather here faithfully. And Father, that we would glorify your name. In all these things we pray. Amen. We have a little bit going on here. Jesus being captured, Peter denying his Lord, and somebody's ear getting chopped off. There's a lot to take in, but I think we need to start with the people this passage revolves around. Specifically, we're going to start with the Apostle Peter. Peter is very well documented in the scriptures. He is a very important figure in Christianity. And in Matthew 16, we see Jesus commending Peter as the first recorded disciple to call Jesus the Christ, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for calling me Jesus, for draw, calling me the Christ. And the next thing that Jesus says 
is, I think, very important to understand uh, the fact that Jesus did die for failures. But I have to preface this point with we're not papists. We don't believe <laughs> in, the, uh, in the Pope. So John Calvin says it like this. It is the foolish inference of the papist that he received the primacy, talking about Simon Peter, and became the universal head of the whole church. Rank is a different thing from power, and to be elevated to the highest place of honor among a few persons is a different thing from embracing the whole world under his dominion. So, with that, I'm going to tell you the next verse where Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church, saying that you are going to do great things. You are going to be one of the men upon which my church is founded. You are going to be one of the fathers of the Christian church. Then, after he commends Peter, he begins to speak about what's going to happen next, that soon he will die, he will go and be crucified, he will die a criminal's death. And Peter didn't like that, so he rebuked Jesus. <laughs> he had the audacity to rebuke God. But Peter definitely seems like a character in the Scripture, to say the least. And I think once we understand the role of Peter in the church, I think we can understand Peter's response to Christ in the upper room discourse. Jesus says that my disciples, they will scatter. You will leave me and I will go away. I will die on a cross. And Peter says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. To which Jesus promptly replies, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Could you imagine the Lord of all creation saying that to you? Listening to him teach for hours and he says that directly to your face? You walk into a classroom. You're eager to learn this subject. Your teacher's great. You love him to death. This is your favorite class, favorite time of the day. You sit down and you're eager to learn and you're sitting there taking it in for a minute. The teacher turns, looks directly at you, and says, you will fail the test tomorrow. <laughs> what? What's the point of me being here if I'm going to fail the test tomorrow? Sure, you're going to grab hold some of the stuff, but that anxiety is going to build up in you. You're going to be panicked that you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. <laughs> I don't know what I'm why I'm here. You might grab some of the Pythagorean theorem, you might hear a squared plus b squared equals c squared. You might hear uh, sine cosine, co, co, oh, I hate trigonometry. What's that? Uh, sine cosine and tangent, goodness. You're going to grab some of that, but you're not really going to understand a lot of it. There's going to be this panic, this anxiety that is tinging your learning, your thoughts. So, after all this the teacher has given you, he closes class and says, all right, let's go take the test. And I think that once we understand the anxiety, who Peter is, we get into the text. They go into the garden where they are met with servants of the high priest, Roman guards, and Judas Iscariot. This is a pretty clear sign of a mob if we've ever seen one. The whole torches and pitchforks the whole shebang, and there's this, you can feel this tension in the air because they're Roman guards here for your Lord. They're going to get Jesus, and 
Jesus is the one who breaks the silence in this gospel. He says, who are you looking for? To which the Roman guards promptly reply, Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Jesus says, I am he. Jesus doesn't hide it. He says directly, I am he. The Roman guards then fall flat on their butts. Jesus is clearly in control of the situation. He is clearly divine. In these I am statements, there is usually a representation of the Holy One being brought before the unholy ones, us. We see it in Isaiah when Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and he says, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. We see it in Peter when Jesus is calling out to him in the boat. He says, Peter, draw, cast out the nets one more time. I know you've been fishing all day, but cast out the nets. And they literally get a boatload of fish. And Peter says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When you are in presence of the holy, you recognize who he is and who you are. You recognize that you are minuscule compared to God. And in this passage, we clearly see Jesus saying, I am he, and they fall back. So you've got to imagine Simon Peter, who says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. He says, Lord, you shall not die. All the dots connecting in his mind to this point in time. Jesus saying, I'm going to leave you. You will scatter. All of it, just all the gears turning. And then the Roman guards get back up and Jesus says again, whom are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he says, I am he. And then he says, if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus Christ on our behalf saying to the forces of evil, if you seek me, let these men go. He says, I will take their place and I will be punished for them. Now, I think Peter said enough was enough when Jesus was ready to go because then he pulls out his sword and chops off somebody's ear. But Jesus Jesus says, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given to me? Jesus says, I have a job to do, Peter, and you cannot stop it. Peter's denial is coming, but I think now we can properly understand the agony that Peter is going through, this mental anxiety that is coursing through his mind at all times through this passage, that his Lord is leaving the Christ, the Messiah, the one that he had been waiting for, all of the Jewish people had been waiting for, is going to die on a cross, a criminal's death. This isn't the man he's been waiting for. The Messiah is supposed to be this conqueror king, right? He's supposed to be the one that unites Israel and brings them back into the promised land. But Christ is being taken away by Roman guards to be flogged, to be crucified. And that's the good news. But in light of this, Peter still doesn't seem to get a hold of this because he denies his Lord three times. In verse 17, the servant girl asked Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. In verses 25 through 27, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself beside the fire with the officers and the servants of the high priest. They asked him, 
you're not one of those Christians, are you? You don't follow that Jesus guy, do you? And he said, I don't. Then, one of my favorite parts in this passage, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, did I not see you in the garden with him? One who had clearly and very obviously been there, who had seen his cousin's ear get chopped off, he said, didn't you chop off Malchus's ear? Peter, again, denies his Lord, and at once the rooster crowed. What? Peter, what are you doing? Jesus told you that this was going to happen. And you still did it. <laughs> and I think that it's easy to point fingers, but when we look at our lives, when we look at the little things that we do, the small conversations that we have, the little jokes that we laugh of, the thoughts that run through our mind that we grab hold of so often, we fail our Lord with our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. We so often, like Peter, fail Christ physically. But the good news is, Christ says something very beautiful in this passage and that I think is crucial to the understanding of the cross. Jesus says, put away your sword, Peter. Peter going to the defense of his Messiah, thinking that he's the one in control in light of the clear and present threat. Jesus still says, put away your sword, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? I, I don't think that we understand that enough in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our lives, that Jesus Christ died for failures, fully knowing every failure you will ever commit. <laughs> On our behalf, He looks to the forces of evil. He looks to His Father. He says to God, Take me, but let these men go. This is God incarnate. God made flesh the one who was perfect. The second Adam. We don't seem to grasp the reality of this situation because so often we try to grab a hold of our situations in life and say, God, I've got this. This is all me. I've got this. I can do this for you. But then we fail and fall short. But God says, I've got a plan for that. I died for you because of your failures. But I'm not here to condemn you. We do that well enough on our own. We are failures just like Peter here. Every rogue word and deed will condemn us. Even while Jesus is being crucified on our behalf, we utterly and totally fail. But we need not despair because of who Christ is. The divinity of Jesus Christ makes this promise all the better. If he is truly God and truly man, there is some kind of omni-attribute, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good attribute in him, the perfect one. And 
as God, He has been orchestrating history. He has known everything that is going to happen, and He has been making sure every step of the way things will happen in the manner that they do. And this is so good because we see it in history that the first step to Calvary was before Jesus Christ was born. The first step to Calvary was hope and redemption when we failed in the beginning. When we ate the fruit of the tree. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Every single moment throughout human history, God has been working through every single person in order to make this happen, to fulfill the promise of the gospel. When we had a chance, we screwed it up. Now, when we don't have a chance, when we are utter and total failures with no hope, Jesus Christ steps in. Jesus Christ says, if you're looking for me, let these men go. He says, I am enough. He says, put away your sword. You are not enough. You cannot fulfill this. I have a job to do. I will drink the cup of wrath that the Father will pour out upon me. You cannot miss this. All throughout Christ's path to the cross, He has been total control since the beginning, fully knowing what will happen, fully ordaining everything that will happen. Otherwise, there's no joy. If Christ is not God in flesh, we don't have atonement for sins. We don't have joy. Otherwise, it's just a cosmic coincidence. It's just an excuse for a foolish philosophy. But because Jesus is God made man, we have joy seeing the fact that Christ is dying on our behalf. Going to the cross willingly. Knowing what He's going to suffer. Knowing the pain, the agony, being tortured at the hands of imperfect people. Only when we recognize the divinity of Christ can we recognize the beauty of the cross. Everything that Christ does and did was in order to save His church. He drinks the cup for His church. The choosing of His disciples was not an accident. The choosing of the Apostle Peter to deny Him three times and to later be a great church father was not an accident. Jesus knew all of the failures that Jesus would, or Peter and all of his disciples would commit. And he still willingly goes to the cross. Every single time we screw up, God knows that we would have done it. He knew that we were going to do it in 2019. He knows our future sin from every second from this point on. He knew what we would do in our past. He ordains all of these things in order that we would be His. Christ fully knowing the wrath of God must be poured out upon Him completely so that He can have His people. So that the ones would call Christ Lord later would be fully forgiven and sit at His right hand. 
He knew all that you would do, all your failures, and still called you. I think that this manifests itself in human terms in a class that I had taken a year ago. I took a financial accounting class a year ago. And had I known that I was going to drop this class because I didn't need it for my minor, that I would switch a different minor, I would not have suffered the pain and (laughs) agony that that class had presented me. I would not have spent the money on this class that I did. I would not have suffered for something that was so pointless. The failing of this class for my ultimate goal. Even though we still fail, he knows we're going to fail. He knows in the moment of tempting when we do fail or when we do succeed. And he still dies for us. In light of failures, God uses us. Simon Peter went down in history as one of the great founding fathers of Christianity of our faith. He went on to be the mouthpiece that God used in the saving of 3,000 people in the book of Acts. If Christ calls this guy the rock and he denied Jesus very blatantly in the recorded word of God, will he not use us? See, whereas Judas Iscariot went down as the betrayer in history, Simon Peter's identity was not founded in his failure. His identity was in the actions of somebody else. His identity was found in the one who took the cup of wrath on his behalf. The one who chose him before time. The one that says, Peter, you might not lay your life down for me, but I will lay my life down for you. And it is in the one whom we find our identity. It's where we find joy. In light of our failures. And I think that there are three things that this passage should produce in our life. First, this passage passage should produce weeping. A legitimate sadness and agony. Seeing Jesus Christ on the cross. Seeing that He was God made flesh. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to come to the earth. He could have stayed in heaven and lived there forever and left us to our failures. But He chose to step down and suffer at the hands of imperfect people. The perfect one dying on behalf of the failures who continually deny Him with our lives and deeds. We should weep that the Savior did this for us. Secondly, we should rejoice. This weeping should quickly turn into rejoicing. Seeing the salvation that God has provided us. A way to know God again. A way to be brought back into the family of God. A way to be made right with God. Jesus Christ reconciles us to God. We are brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. We are co-heirs. We call God Abba. Father, lastly, this message should produce a lasting change in our life. Because of the saving work that Jesus Christ has done inside of us, there is a lasting and visible change on the outside. Christ did not die the death of a criminal for you to continue in your sins. I don't have to tell you what those are. You know what it is in your life. 
that you are not honoring God with. Whether it's your time, your money, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, whatever it is. There should be a lasting change in your life because of what Christ has done. Because Christ takes all the wrath of God upon himself so that we can be made right with God. None of us are perfect. We all need work. We all must grow till the day Jesus Christ comes or calls us home. If you're in the church this morning and you are not a believer, I would pray earnestly and I would beg you, look to the cross of Jesus Christ and see what He has done for sinners. Believe in His work. Repent of your sins for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For those of us that I call family this morning in the body of Christ. Let us rejoice that Christ took the cup for us on our behalf. In light of all our failures, Christ died for those, for us. Ever since the beginning of time, He was preparing a way for you and me. Let us now go boldly to the throne of grace in light of our faith. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your gospel. Father, you are holy. You are just. There is a real payment of sins that must happen, Father. And in Christ, that atonement was paid. Lord, I pray that your message would fill the hearts of your people, Lord, that you would be glorified, that your gospel would be made known to the nations. Father, I pray that this morning that we would go out and encourage that Christ took the cup for his church, that we would weep for our Savior dying on the cross for us, dying a criminal's death that he did not deserve, knowing that he could have stayed in heaven enjoying pleasures forevermore at his Father's right hand. God, you are good. And we are not. We are sinners every day, failing utterly and totally. But Lord, you died for failures. Father, use us for your gospel. Help us to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ around the globe, in our community, Lord, to make a difference. In your holy name, I pray all these things. Amen.